Thanks for coming back again. Here's week three in my faithful uh, stalwarts. And um, today we're going to explore the pursuit of holiness. So we talked for week one about just an introduction. We talked about the God of holiness. We tried to define holiness. We looked at Isaiah 6 and the transcendent majesty of God. And we said that holiness is, is the God of holiness. It's his purpose and plan and command for us to be holy like he is holy. Then last week we looked at union with Christ and what that, uh, that glorious doctrine is supposed to, how it's supposed to impact our lives and impact our pursuit of holiness. So we talked about the fact that we're in Christ, that our lives are hidden with him and that uh, our, our life is intertwined and enwrapped in his life so that everything that is said of Christ can now be said of us. And also that... Uh, we, Christ is in us, that by the Spirit, Christ dwells within us. And so we have the, the Spirit of Christ living within us to, uh, to empower us towards holiness. So we said it was the, the union with Christ acts as an anchor and an engine for our holiness, providing us a new identity, access to God's grace, a renewed mindset and way of thinking, and um, empowering through the Spirit to grow and change. Now this morning, the pursuit of holiness. I was trying to find a joke to begin, and this is the best one that I could find, because I was inspired by Jim's bridge jokes. So I feel like I have to do a Sunday school joke. So here we go, this is the, this is the best one I could find about holiness. Well, maybe not holiness. <laughs> He said, this week I started in a self-improvement class, but as it turned out, the class wasn't for me because I just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> All right. So I don't know why you signed up for this class. I, I, that's my first point. <laughs> I don't know why you signed up for this class. Maybe you came because you just wanted to hear a British accent and you thought, All right. Maybe you thought, I'm always late to church, so if I go to Sunday school, maybe I won't be late for church. Maybe that's your reason, I don't know. Or maybe it's because, hopefully, it's because you thought, actually, I'd really like to think about the topic of holiness and how we can become more like Jesus. Because as Christians, I think, in our heads and deep down in our hearts, we know we ought to be um, growing in godliness. We know we ought to be pursuing holiness. We know we ought to be obedient, and all of those terms are kind of synonymous and interchangeable and we can use them um, you know we can replace one with the other and still be talking about the same things uh, and we know deep down we want to be growing in in godliness pursuing holiness sometimes it's a it's part of a sermon that kind of tweaks our conscience and we feel like oh yes I need to respond to that or maybe it's someone sharing in your small group and they share a testimony and we feel exhorted to I need to address that area in my life as well. Or maybe, you know, it could be just, you know, when you're first a Christian, sometimes you realize like, oh, I, I didn't realize I needed to change. And, and so God does a work in us to change us, you know, so that our, our friends and our neighbors who knew us before we knew Jesus say, wow, there's a difference here in your life. But over time, we kind of come become content or comfortable with where we're at. Uh, and maybe we feel like, oh, you know, I, I just feel sluggish or a bit static. And so I really want to grow. But the question is, how? how? How do we grow? What does that pursuit of holiness look like? So I want to just take a, 
uh, a panoramic view of that this morning. Next week, we're going to try and get into some of the nitty gritty. But this morning, I want to talk about the process of sanctification. And uh, before we jump into what we're going to talk about, let me pray. So, dear Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be together again this morning. We thank you for the time that we can set aside to look into your words uh, and study it. Lord, you, uh, Jesus, you pray in John 17 that... Um, that we would be sanctified by the truth and you say that your word is truth and so this morning as we gather around your word we pray that you would sanctify us with your truth and we pray that as we consider the topic of pursuing holiness we would not see it as just a duty or drudgery something that we just have to do to check off the the to-do list one more day but that it would be to us a delight something that we want to do because we want to be like Jesus. And we pray that our pursuit of holiness as we study this topic over these entire four weeks, uh, that it would become kind of um, supernaturally natural to us, that we would long to be like you, that you would empower us to be like you, and that you would receive the glory as we do. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the pursuit of holiness... What, under your first uh, or second point, it should say taking on the family resemblance. Now, before Jesus saved us, Colossians 1 and Ephesians 2 describe us as being alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds and being people that, uh, Ephesians 2, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that just, those two verses, Paul describes us as people who have spurned God's love. We're people who have refused to trust in his kindness, refused to trust in his generosity, refused to trust in his love. We've broken his rules. We've rejected his authority. And we're in a pretty bad situation. But then, because of the grace of God, we discover that he extends to us an invitation of redemption and rescue and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation through the sacrifice of his son on a cross in our place. So Paul would continue Colossians 1. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And again, Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. When we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, we enter into this whole new set of relationships. And the primary and most profound uh, relationship is the change in our relationship with God from enemies to children of God. John 1.12, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans 8, 14 and 17, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we become children of God. We become sons and daughters of the living God, which is glorious. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful privilege. 
adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ, with Christ because we are in Christ. So union with Christ is functioning there. And what we, what we see as we consider the idea of being children of God and as we consider the teaching of Scripture is that our union with Christ means that the ways that the Father loves the Son is now the way that he loves us. And the way that the Father treats the Son is the way that he now treats us. And the way that the Father shares all that he has with the Son, we're invited into that to have it shared with us too. And so in Christ, our lives are eternally intertwined with Jesus. Now that means that God is not our boss. Okay, he's not a boss who demands growth in our kind of professional standards and abilities and skills and performance so that we could be more used to him. He's a loving father. And Jesus is our brother, as Hebrews 2 says who together enable us to grow up in their family as they delight in us. And so growth in holiness, this, uh, or growth in godliness, pursuit of holiness, obedience, whatever you want to call it, is not primarily about just knowing your Bible better or about serving in some ministry or position in the church or praying uh, or sharing the gospel more effectively. Now, it may include those things, but growth in godliness and holiness is ultimately about relationship. It's about taking on the family resemblance and growing into the likeness of Christ. Now, week one, we tried to define personal holiness. And we said it involves living a life that is set apart for God's purposes and is dedicated to his will. It reflects God's character. It's characterized by righteousness and obedience to God's commands. And it strives to be more like Jesus in one's thoughts, words, actions, deeds, and motivations. So we are saved and adopted uh, by God. And he does that kind of, we come to Christ just as we are, don't we? We come to him just as we are. Out of his great love for us, he he doesn't call us to a particular standard. He comes down and condescends and meets us where we're at, which is wonderful. But God doesn't want to or intend for us to stay the same and stay in that place. In fact, he won't allow it. In Romans 8 verse 28, Paul tells us that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God does not intend for us to stay the same. He has, in fact, preordained for us to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. As we said, it's his purpose and his command to us to take on the family resemblance. And so in one sense, we grow by considering Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So in one sense, we, we are changed as we behold, we become what we behold, if you like. That God works in us and transforms us as we behold Jesus Christ in all of his glory, like a, um, like a Padawan, Jedi apprentice who, you know, hangs out with his Jedi master and they live life together and he watches and he sees what he's like and what he does. And then that Jedi apprentice eventually becomes the real deal. We, as we behold Christ, 
we are changed, we grow as we behold his wisdom, his gentleness, his compassion, his grace, his patience, his meekness, his integrity, his forgiveness, his justice, his kindness, his generosity, his faithfulness. We're changed. And yet it would be misleading for us to think that we just have to sit back, relax and just watch God to work. Okay, because 2 Corinthians 3, while entirely true, is not entirely all that is to be said about growth and the pursuit of holiness. Paul in Philippians 2, this is the central text that we're going to explore together, uh, writes in chapters 12 and 13 these words. Hopefully this is in your outline. (coughs) Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, hopefully, these words are pretty familiar. We did a sermon series on Philippians not too long ago, didn't we? So, uh, this is familiar stuff. And so, hopefully, we would read those two verses and think, okay. In order to understand them, there's a therefore right at the beginning. So that's going to tie us back to something that has already been said. And the therefore, verse 12, ties us back into a wider context of the whole book of Philippians uh, and Paul's exhortation to this church. But it also ties us to um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which is the beginning, the opening verse of the central theme of the book. Okay, so in Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Let your only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then all of the teaching that flows from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 to the end of chapter 2 verse 18 expands on and explains what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then we get to the kind of the more immediate context of our two verses, which is verses uh, 5 through 11 of chapter 2. You'll know these. This is where Paul talks about the condensation, uh, the condescension, not the condensation, (laughs) the condescension of Christ to the earth, taking on flesh, becoming a slave, laying down his life, being obedient, even obedient unto death on a cross, and then being highly exalted and receiving the name that is above every other name and at the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father and then Paul jumps into verse 12 therefore so in light of all of that in light of him calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in light of all that Christ has done Paul says now then these things should flow from them these things that I'm just about to say to you flow out of those truths. They flow out of all that Christ has done. That the calling to work out our salvation of verse 12 is a proper response to the gospel, to the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus. That the working out of our salvation is is to be done in union with Christ. That as we are hidden in him and he is in us, 
That's supposed to inform and shape our everyday living so that we might live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also another connection between verses 5 to 11 and our passage of 12 and 13. Because in verse 8, Paul highlights that Christ, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says, verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, obey. And the connection, the gospel connection and the logic there is, if Christ is obedient and we're hidden in him and he's in us, how can we not be also obedient? If he is obedient, we belong to an obedient saviour. How much more should we be obedient to? So verses 12 and 13 are all about holiness, all about growth, all about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, all about killing sin and living by the Spirit. They're about this process of sanctification. Now let me just clarify a few important uh, theological terms before we get too far in. Uh, I'm going to look at justification, definitive sanctification, and the process of sanctification, just to give us, make sure that we're all clear about the differences. Uh, and I want to hopefully explain it through a, help, a helpful illustration I received from a friend of mine who's a Sovereign Grace pastor. His name is Rick Gamash, and he's in Minnesota. Okay, so I just credit him. But before we are saved, as we said earlier, we are alienated from God. We are evil in our minds. We're hostile enemies. We are... Paul says, Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins, condemned, uh, hopeless and helpless. We might call ourselves, in, in the illustration, frogs, okay? We, we could think of ourselves as frogs, you know. What use is a frog, really? Oh, oh come on, we don't need softy, sentimental frog lovers. <laughs> oh. Frogs, all right? So that's, that's who we are, if, we, if you like. We are frogs. Then Christ saves us. He, he moves in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to grant us grace and faith to cast our lot in with Christ, to repent and throw ourselves upon him. And in that moment, we are regenerated. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when we uh, are saved, we are justified. Okay, that is a one-time instantaneous event in the life of a believer whereby God declares us to be righteous. It's a legal declaration where he says, you are now acceptable in my sight. You, your sins are forgiven based on the righteous life of Jesus, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. And that, in that moment of justification where we are declared righteous, Christ frees us from the penalty of sin, okay? Stuff that we should uh, give thanks for. In that moment, God makes a declaration about frogs, okay? We are no longer frogs. We're to be considered princes and princesses. God, if you like, stoops down and kisses the frog, all right? We're right with him. We might still look like frogs in that moment, but we now enjoy a new status in Jesus Christ. We're justified. 
Now, at the same moment, we also experience definitive sanctification, which we touched on last week. This is, again, a, a one-time event, instantaneous act, where God works in us to mark us out, to separate us. He declares us holy, okay, as his chosen people, and he transfers us from the, the kingdom of darkness and the sphere of sin into the kingdom of heaven and the sphere of God's holiness. We become saints, we're set apart ones, okay? Jesus, in that moment, he frees us from the power of sin, okay? In that moment of definitive sanctification. It's like God, he takes, he leans down and he repositions the frog and he takes us from the pond to the palace, okay? He sets us apart. So we enjoy a new position with Christ. So we're justified, new status with Christ. He declares us no longer to be frogs, although we still look like frogs. And in that moment of definitive sanctification, he repositions us. He takes us from the pond to the palace. And we enjoy a new position. And in that same moment, he begins this process of progressive sanctification. This is God beginning a process in the life of a believer whereby we become that which he has already declared us to be and set us apart to be. It's a lifelong, ongoing journey involving the practical outworking of our faith through the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death sin, to put on righteousness, to pursue holiness, to grow in godliness. And over time, Jesus works in us to increasingly free us from the presence of sin. Okay? So in that moment, God begins to turn the frog into a beautiful prince or princess through a new life in Christ. So do you see that there's some differences there? Hopefully, hopefully you get that. So he, he kisses the frog in justification, if you like, but we're still frogs. But he moves us to the palace and he begins a work to transform us into princes and princesses. All three very intertwined things, but helpful to just kind of differentiate and then one day the frog will become what he was declared to be so john would write in first john 3 see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we still are frogs. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And in fact, Paul would say to the Philippians in one, chapter 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So the process of sanctification is all about becoming less frog-like and becoming more royal in line with the family that we belong to. And Paul tells us in, in verses 12 and 13 that there's two things that we need to understand about the process of sanctification and about pursuing holiness. And that, the first one is that we work in verse 12, that we are called to work. We are called to work out our salvation with 
fear and trembling. Now, we have, to be, we have to be super duper careful to think through the language here that Paul is using because he's not saying work out your salvation to earn your salvation. All right. He's not saying that. He's not saying work your salvation so that God will respond to you and he'll work in you. He's not saying that either. Okay. He's not saying, you know, God has saved you, but in order to, to stay through to the end, it relies on you now. Okay. So none of those things are what Paul is saying. When he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he means is bring about your salvation, work it out, affect it, produce it in the sense of put your salvation on display in your life. The things that God has already done, the gift of grace that you have already received, make it known, put it on display, uh, work it out into every area of your life so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that he has called you to. And this working out of your salvation, the language of produce and affect it and bring it to be, it, it, it takes continuous, strenuous effort and work. Paul is calling us to see our responsibility in becoming holy, that we are not passive spectators. Holiness won't happen apart from grace-empowered effort on our part to work to obey. Now that can sound dangerous. That sounds like dangerous language, but that's not, this is not just like one isolated text. There is the language of the Bible in relation to pursuing holiness includes words like this. So I, I've just listed them all here. I won't read them all, but um, <clears throat> I'll just dip into a few, but you can read them in your own time. Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everybody and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, train yourselves for godliness. 2 Peter 1, make every effort. Colossians 3, 5, put to death. And Ephesians 4, put to death, put off, put on. 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Hebrews 12, Lay aside every weight of sin and run with endurance the race that's set before us. Philippians 3, as we looked at last week, Paul says, I strain forward and press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Strive, train, make every effort. Put to death, put off, put on, fight take hold of, lay aside, run, strain, press on, toil, discipline, work it out. This is the language of the Bible. We shouldn't be scared of it because they are good biblical words. Now it can sound super spiritual to say, well, we just, you know, we, we make progress in the Christian life just by looking to Jesus and by preaching the gospel to ourselves. And those are, don't, don't misunderstand me, I'm not minimizing them in any way, shape or form. Yes, salvation is by mercy, not merit. You know, we are to believe the truth of justification and definitive sanctification and to hold those things close and tight and as precious. We've been adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit empowers our pursuit of holiness. The gospel drives us forward to Christ's likeness. Faith fuels our obedience. All of those things are important and essential and necessary 
I'm not trying to set them up in opposition to what I'm about to say, but we still need to put the effort in. Yeah? Sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled toil and effort. It's trusting and trying, if you like. It's that grace is, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a great Welsh preacher, puts it like this. The New Testament calls us to take action. It does not tell us that the work of sanctification is going to be done for us. We are in the good fight of faith and we have to do the fighting. But thank God we are enabled to do it. For the moment we believe and are justified by faith and are born again of the Spirit of God, we have the ability. So the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that. And then having reminded us of that, it says, now then, go and do it. I think that that's helpful. Because if without that kind of um, biblical emphasis, we could get confused. And we could wonder, like, why am I not growing? Why am I not changing? Why is it not automatic? Now, maybe another question that we have, and this is one that I've encountered over pastoring for 20 years in England. I, hear, I used to hear this a lot, is... Well, is holiness really possible? You know, and, and I'd often sit across from someone and they would say something like this, you know, I, I believe God has saved me. I, you know, I'm, I was, I'm a wretched sinner. Um, I, I'm so wretched, you know, I, I can't obey Jesus. You know, even my best things that I do, they're shot through with sin and they're ruined. Uh, you know, I don't love God with my whole heart and mind and soul and strength, even for one hour let alone every day, all day. And I don't love my neighbor as myself, as I should. But thanks be to God, he has saved me. And he forgives me and he's covered me in the righteousness of Jesus. And, and that's enough. And you know what I want to say to that person? And I, did, I have said to those people, yes, that is absolutely true. It's unspeakably beautiful that's the gospel but it's not entirely true and then you kind of find you get this funny look like maybe you're looking at me like okay man he's a heretic let's get ready to stone him i thought you know we came here to hear his accent and now we just got heresy no 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 let me explain i'd sit and say no obedience is possible Holiness is obtainable. Killing sin is doable because the Bible tells me so. Okay? God has freed us from the penalty and the power of sin, and he is freeing us from the presence of sin. Titus 2, 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation for all people, but it also sticks around. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace didn't just appear and then fade into the background when it had saved us. No, it sticks around like a personal trainer who comes alongside us with a training program tailed to instruct us and train us in how to live holy lives that please God. And that transformation is evidenced not by learning flamboyant new religious rituals, but by saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. And so it can sound humble to say, 
I'm a wretched sinner, I can't be holy. But it's actually not humble, it's harmful. Because we, we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater. God calls us to holiness. And we mustn't mistake obedience with perfection. Okay? You know, we can think, and I have thought this, and I still at times think this, I can think that living a life that is worthy of the gospel means never ever sinning again. And that's just unrealistic. We, we've got to throw off false expectations of perfection. The good news of the gospel is that by grace, through Christ, God accepts our imperfect obedience. He's not... I'm hesitant to say this, but I'll put it like this. He's not looking for perfect obedience. He's looking for genuine obedience. He knows we're going to fail because he knows we're in a process, because he designed the process. You know, he could have bent down and kissed the frog and we would have immediately become princes and princesses. He could have done that. He's God. He could do whatever he likes. But he has designed a process by which he bends down and kisses us and then over time transforms us. Now, I don't know why he do, he's chosen to do it other than it's going to bring him the glory that he deserves. So he, he knows we're sinners. He knows we still need forgiveness. He knows that we are in a process. So he's after our obedience, but we shouldn't confuse obedience with perfection in our own minds. I hope that's helpful. And, and actually, God also, like, the wonderful thing about obedience is that when we obey, he's pleased with us. You know, he accepts us in Christ, but as we obey, he's pleased with us. And there's a whole bunch of scriptures uh, that I put in your notes that talk about how as we obey, as we pursue holiness, as we grow in godliness, he is pleased with us. So we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It, those two words that we haven't really looked at, they, they actually really, they point us forward to verse 13, which is the second key thing to understand about pursuing holiness. It's a much shorter point, although it shouldn't be, but it is. And that's that God is at work in verse 13. Fear and trembling, when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not like Paul is saying, okay, you have to obey because otherwise you're going to end up in the headmaster's office for some kind of like punishment or principal's office, sorry. You know, it's not fear of punishment that should drive us. It's, it, it, this is what I mean by uh, when I put in your notes, remember Isaiah, remember Isaiah chapter 6, is Isaiah sees a vision of God in his holiness. He has this deep reverence and awe as he recognizes the holiness of God and the importance of obeying him. And, and so there's that kind of reverential awe kind of fear when he's confronted with the transcendent majesty of God. And then there's that trembling kind of humility and an awareness of one's own inadequacies in the face of that holiness. Who am I in light of this holy God? Who am I to be able to stand here and see these things? Who am I to be able to draw near? I love what John Piper says in his sermon that he preached on these texts. He says, why should there be fear and trembling as I attack my sin and bring about salvation? The reason given in the text is, is not a threat. It's not that threat of God's going to whack us. It's a gift. 
work and will to kill your sin and do it with fear and trembling because God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer, the justifier, the sustainer, the father and lover is so close to you that your working and willing are his working and his willing. Tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God is the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. Our continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is not only being carried out in the very presence of the all-holy God, but is the very continuous, sustained, strenuous effort of God himself. And then he says this, I am not waiting for a miracle of being transformed. I'm called to act the miracle. Verse 12, the Bible's call to strive, effort, run, press on, etc. would be absolutely overwhelming if it wasn't for verse 13. And, and it's God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That little word for in verse 13 is life-changing because it means that the appeal to holiness of verse 12 is not an appeal to self-sufficiency. It's not an appeal to self-improvement. It's not self-generated. It is God, we are not left to ourselves to work it out alone. Now, our effort is necessary, but it's God's power that makes it possible. Our work depends on his work, but our work is not irrelevant because of his work. We work out because he works in. These two things go hand in hand. God's continuous, gracious, sovereign activity incentivizes and motivates and empowers our efforts and actually makes them fruitful and effective. It's a little bit like if my, uh, well, my son is 10 now, Devon, but when he was like three or four and he would like to do jigsaw puzzles, we had a big cupboard of games and jigsaw puzzles and they were usually on the, like, you know, up high. And so if he wanted one, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to pick him up, lift him up so that he could reach to get the jigsaw puzzle. And then he would, we'd pull it down and we'd do it together. So who, who got the jigsaw puzzle for him? Did he get it? Yeah. Did I get it? Yeah. Because I lifted him up as he reached for it. And in sanctification, does God do the work? Yes. Do I do the work? Yes. He's the cause. We're the effect, if you like. His work is the cause. Our work is the effect. And when we work, we are just an expression of his work, if you like. And his work is comprehensive. He wills it and he works it. He empowers the working, but he's also the willing behind the work. So let me put it like this. God works in our hearts to show us Jesus and he excites us about being like Jesus. And then he might show us an area of life where we need to be more like Jesus. And then he lifts us up towards Christ as we strive and reach and stretch for it. He works and we work, so the desire to obey and please God, the will to do it, and the actual doing it are all of God. And God is always at work in his children. He's always at work in each one of us. 
any inclination that we have to please God, any inclination we have to want to pursue holiness, any inclination we have to put off sin and to put on righteousness, there's God at work in us and so we should be encouraged. He's always at work in his children and the work that he has begun, he will complete it and he will get the glory. So growth in holiness, the pursuit of holiness, growth in godliness, our work and God's work. And we've got to let these two verses sit side by side. It's like a tightrope. If you fall off one side or the other, you're in danger. But if you can maintain the tension, you can walk along the tightrope. Okay? The tightrope of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I love what Paul says as he captures these two things. Not only does he exhort us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as God works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he testifies that that's his experience. It's not just what he teaches, but it's his experience. So he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And then finally, I'll close with this. Alec Motia says this, the Christian life, this growing in the likeness of Christ, this pursuit of holiness, is a blend of rest and activity. Not alternating from one to the other, but a blend in which, at one and the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently on what God is doing within and actively pursuing the duty of being blameless. God has made us holy by Christ and he intends to make us holy through Christ. And whatever he calls us to do, he always empowers us to do it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that your divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of you who has called us to your glory and excellence. We pray that you would help us to believe your great and precious promises and that you would help us to pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness for your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. I got time for questions, but I know we probably need, some of us need to disappear. But if you've got a question, I'm here, so come and find me. And uh, last week is next week. Thanks for sticking around.